0: This album is dedicated to all brothers
1: and sisters! My men and my women.
2: And yo know, it's time to put hands together. hop, hip hop. Cause who I'm talking about y'all is hip hop, hip hop, hip hop, hip hop, hip hop. The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who inside of them, the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better. And ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. Hi, I'm Wade Davis, I'm a former NFL player and the executive director of the You Can Play Project, also an adjunct professor at NYU.
0: How can you fairly assess something from the outside looking in, and drive you times you'll be wrong, you know what I mean? How could a motherfucker go around and hate a nigga he never even met, he don't
2: even know him, shit. I think this rap shit is all people. I didn't discover Jay-Z until after Reasonable Doubt. My friends were like, how can you be such a Jay-Z fan? You actually didn't hear his first album until after his third album. But I was like, hey, I was a late bloomer. The song, Lucky Me, really spoke to where where I was at in my life. I wasn't out, I was closeted. And I, I remember hearing that song, as he said, you know, it's so hard to be me. Like, people don't really understand what's going on inside. All they can really judge me on is what's going on on the outside. And I remember hearing that song, thinking like, wow, Like he's talking about me, you know? He's talking about how I was this football player, this semi-star, who was pretty popular in high school, and everyone thought that I had all of my shit together. I think that's pretty typical for most high school kids, to be honest, but I think for myself, it was a little bit different because I was gay, and I had never met another gay person or at least someone who was openly gay definitely never met a gay athlete so it was at a point in my life where i was just like damn like can i actually do this and unfortunately i didn't think that i could so i became a did hey, you notice know niggas want to strip to the
0: bone for shit you won't hate a nigga like that faggot get your own hate that i can't roam the street without the clip and chrome knowing one day i'm gonna have to flip come on you know this shit don't stop to the crystal don't pop you have to kill a nigga and your wrist don't lock i whole world's against me in fact there ain't no turning back bring it on hate the price of fame cause it costs too much can I live without your nigga saying I floss too much hate the way you make this hate flow all for us Steady there, was,
2: there was this one openly gay kid in my school and we'll call him John Smith for lack of a better name right and John Smith was the only kid in my school who had the the courage to be his authentic self, and I hated him for it. I hated him because I wanted to be him. Like, he was quietly my hero. You know, I had never met someone who was so self-possessed to be like, hey, I'm 15, 16 years old and I'm gay. I want to tell the whole school, or not like really tell the school, but just be myself, love it or hate it. Um, So I bullied him incessantly. I bullied anyone else who showed up as different um, because that kept the attention off of me. Just thinking it back to to that song, I felt as if like it was the first time someone actually knew what I was going through. And there's a point in, in that song when Jay Z actually uses the word faggot. Um, and what's fascinating about that part is I was dealing with so much shame and internalized homophobia. I used to think that if I ever was gay, that I would not be a faggot like those queer queenie guys. You know, I was going through so much BS at that point. But I remember hearing him say that word and thinking, oh, he's not talking about me. <laughs> He's my favorite rapper um, because it was maybe like the third or fourth song of his I had ever heard, but it was the first time I actually sat down with his music and I like, played them in a headset and not on the on the radio. And I, I think that when you don't listen to his uh, mainstream songs, you really see his genius. You really see his texture would probably be a good word. Like, I think, you know, that people have certain perceptions about guys who are from the inner city or the quote unquote ghetto, a word that I hate, that they aren't intelligent, but they have a different type of intelligence that we actually don't often um, see or give credit to. And then i moved to shreveport when i was around three or four and then i lived in shreveport in an area called the cooper road and the cooper road is like you have to go from a highway to a regular street to a gravel street to a dirt street to no street just to get to my house um my mother got remarried and she married a man who was living in colorado so we packed up and moved to colorado and i went from around no white people to all white white people, I had a heavy Southern accent. And there was often times I'd get patted on the head and when I would talk and people would, would go, oh, bless your little heart. Also, I had a speech impediment. So if you can hear a kid with a speech impediment, with a heavy Southern accent, who's really not that sure of himself, who's really trying to understand his sexuality, it wasn't pretty. Anytime someone uses the term, bless your little heart, it's not a compliment, you know? <laughs> like, it's definitely not a compliment. And I knew that, and there was something inside of me that became very rageful. It's fascinating because I was a really good athlete, but I don't think I ever saw my, myself as intelligent. And it's an interesting space where people They love you for your athletic prowess, but then people are often shocked, even now. You know, the amount of times someone tells me, You speak so well. And I'm like, Well, what the hell were you expecting? And for the most part, people, um, in their mind, they don't mean anything by it, but I tell people there's a difference between intent versus impact, right? Like the intentions may be very innocent, but the impact is an injury, right? And that's an injury to someone's psyche, to someone's mental health, and all of, of those things play a role. And you know, growing up in the South, being a black man, you know, like you did hear the stereotypes, you heard the conversation. So as you start to in- internalize those things, they start to play with your conscience. They start to play with your with your confidence so in my backyard in louisiana we played a game called smear the queer but i had no clue what the term queer meant right we just thought it was a game around football so it's fascinating to fast forward and see my my life now, but my life began as an athlete with the idea that if you were queer, you deserve to be smeared. So there was a house that was next next door to me that didn't have a fence, but there was a fence that went around both of our houses. So we had like a 70 by 30 yard football field where literally we'd have 20 on 20 games. I mean, we'd have 40 guys and some girls in the backyard trying to kill each other playing this game of football. And it was really where I learned how to be tough, how to play through pain, which, you know, got me in trouble at at some points. it wasn't organized, but I would also go back inside of my house and watch the Chicago Bears incessantly. And there was something, I don't know, intuitively that I knew the game. Like I could really look at a pre snap and go, oh, here comes the screen, or they're going to blitz. You know, I'm not a big guy. You know, I'm 5'11, 185 pounds. And I truly believe that my intelligence around the game of football was the reason I made it to the NFL. And then uh, moving to Colorado, I went to a high school that had the very first high school football player on the of SI named Scott Bentley. So I went to a powerhouse uh, high school. You know, we had guys go to Texas a uh, Nebraska, um, USC, a lot of different big time schools. And I didn't even start until I was a senior. Like we had that much talent. You know, I knew I was a good player, but there were guys like Brian Kelly who played for the Bucks and, and the Lions. He was as big as he was in the NFL in tenth grade. You know what I mean? I mean, I was like, this is not fair. You know, I was a late bloomer. You know, I left high school maybe being able to bench 185 pounds. Brian was doing that on incline. I went to school at Weber State in Utah. That was when I was like, wow, like I'm a better player than I thought because I was playing more. I was getting a lot more reps. And then out of college, I remember it was my senior year, probably about maybe three weeks into the season. And there was a scout at practice. And look at my coach. I'm like, hey, coach, who's he here to see? He looks at me and says, you fool. I was like, oh, shit. Like I freaked out and had the worst practice of my entire life because I had no clue that I was even on the NFL's radar. And it's like a very weird thing to go to a small school and have a scout show up, especially back in those days. Like, I graduated college in 2000. I didn't know enough about the way that the NFL worked, about how scouting worked, that they could find a guy like myself at a small school. It took a long time to find this place. It
3: took a long Happy. It took a long time to recognize your face It took a long time
2: It took a long time by the bells. The first time I ever heard that song was at the end of the movie Precious. There's a scene um, as the movie ends where um, Precious is walking out of, I believe, a clinic, some, some sort of a clinic, and she's with her, her son and, and her daughter, and that song comes on. And the lyrics are, It took a long time for me to find this place. It took a long time for me to see happy. recently come out publicly so um, it was a time where I was learning to love myself more I had had a chance to work with these young kids at the Hedrick Martin Institute and they really embodied what self-love was you know to be 13 14 some even even younger to raise their hands to the world and say hey I'm a trans woman I'm a trans man I'm a gay man I'm I'm a lesbian like to see that type of unadulterated courage was blinding And hearing that song and working with these kids really helped me think about, wow, like I am really on this long journey to see happy. And that song kind of became um, a reminder to not be so hard on myself when I get sad, you know, to not be hard on myself when I don't think I've done enough, you know, to think that, hey, this is a journey that I'm on. And that song just really embodied where I was at in such a beautiful way. talking about, you know, a journey within herself. But I do think that we all make songs relate to ourselves in some way. I I think that we all live inside of our own story. When I heard that song, that was the story that I was going through. As I said earlier, like, I had so much self-hatred. I mean, I hated myself for so many years for being gay. I just didn't think that being gay, being black, being an athlete was possible. You know, there are so many negative narratives about athletes. About black men, about black people in general. Um, so to think that I could be at the space where I'm at now, being happy, being loved by so many people in the black community, being loved by so many people in the athletic community, being loved by people who are athletic and black. Those narratives are so pervasive that you actually start to believe them. For me to do the work to unlearn these narratives and to see, wow, like people actually care about me and they they love me. Like that was really, really beautiful. My father was a DJ. Actually, I, I have a scar on my forehead. My father had these huge speakers. I mean, the speakers were probably four feet tall. You know, I mean, they were, they were huge. And he used to DJ. I don't want to overgeneralize, but every black household, on Sunday mornings, you wake up and gospel music is playing. But on Saturday mornings, you wake up and you listen to Whitney Houston and Al Green. And he used to play the Sugar Hill Gang so much that the record just scratched up and the whispers and all these different types of songs. So music was a part of my growing up. I used to always, this, this is terrible. I used to always try to sing like Whitney Houston. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like her voice, it was the voice of an angel. Like I don't think there's ever been a better voice than Whitney Houston. And I was in Chicago visiting some of my cousins and uncles and they had left for some reason. I don't know why, but they left me home alone. The Bodyguard album had recently come out, and the song...
1: uh, (laughs) I'm sorry.
2: The, The song Queen of the Night was on that album, and I played that song maybe 15 plus times in a row in a row and was singing that song to the top of my lungs, spinning around like I was for cool from Solid Gold. And I remember stopping going like, wow, you are gay. people often I didn't even know what the acronym LGBTQ meant you know, until probably like what, 2009, you know, because I lived in a bubble. When you're an athlete, especially when you're in, in the NFL, you really have a small friendship circle. I also did not want to hang around anyone who was gay because I didn't want people to start to question me. So I literally, you know, was in strip clubs all the time. I remember the very first check I got from the Tennessee Titans, I blew it in the strip club and I didn't get any enjoyment out of that at all, right? But it was just all about keeping up the perception, you know. So whether it was me, Stagging my pants down or wearing oversized clothing, you know, I thought that those things—they personified manhood, like they personified masculinity. But what I've come to to learn is that all of that is a performance. Like, imagine a world where men were allowed to just show up as we actually honestly feel, you know? For a heterosexual man to be able to be singing Queen of the Night and to have no one question his sexuality, like. I wish that people would just re- relax around these gender norms. And that's really like what the work of sexism does, right? It puts us in these very small boxes that men have to act a certain way and women can only act feminine. All of these these things I've, I've learned over the last five or, or six years, if you had of known me pre-2009, you're like, this guy's an idiot. You know, <laughs> just because I was all about talking shit and swallowing spit. You know, I was a football player who worked in marketing, you know, who still hadn't learned to love himself, still wasn't really um, in a space where being honest about anything was okay. You know, I was getting around in the 10th grade, you know? And it was a confusing time because I had been intimate with girls and think I liked it. I didn't have any problem performing, right? There was something that happened in the 10th grade where this kid walked into class. I remember my mind going, oh, he's really hot. And then I kind of, I like looked at myself, like from myself and I'm like, what the hell was that? You know, and then I went home and just started watching porn, you know? On my TV, we didn't have the pay channels, but we, we had, this channel called Spice. And I figured out on my re- remote control, if I went up, back, up, back, up, back, up, back, really, really quick, it would come on for like 17 seconds, you know, and then I'm, 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 I'm sitting there, you know, touching myself and doing all these crazy things, right? But it's impossible to watch straight porn without watching the guy as well, you know? But I'm telling myself, I'm only focused on the, on the girl. But at the corner of my eye, I'm taking a peek at him too, right? I really tried to compartmentalize the fact that I was gay and really just, you know, just live in the idea that historically I had been with girls and I was like, what, 15 at that point and that history wasn't very long, but that I could that I could live this heterosexual lifestyle and that I didn't have to be gay because I was a strong enough man, right? I was an athlete, like I could put that away in a box and you know, I could peek at it every now and then but I could live what I thought the rest of, of the world wanted. When-
0: It's my turn to settle down, my main concern. Promise that you will sing about me. Promise that you will sing about me. I said when the light shut off, and it's my turn to settle down, my main concern. Promise that you will sing about me. Promise that you will sing about me. like everything was alright in a fight, he tried to put up with the type of bullet that stuck had went against his will Last blood spill on your hands,
2: my plans rather... Kendrick Lamar and the song is Sing About Me. Again, I didn't hear Kendrick's first album And then I played the second album all the way through and I thought This is the best album I've heard probably since Blueprint. He has a line where he says, this orphanage we call a ghetto is quite a routine. And I always, when I hear a line like that, I just put stop and I sit with it. And I thought to myself, wow, the ghetto is an orphanage. It is a place where people who you have discarded, you put there. Um, And it's done with intention, right? Like, so people who live in ghettos, like, they know why they're there. They're not just there for any reason that someone decided one day, you know, back in, during, you know, uh, the Roosevelt era, that, hey, like, certain people should live here, but you people, you live there, right? It was really fascinating just to hear a rapper really understand history, really understand why the ghetto looks the way that it does.
0: Song about my sister on your tape and card it section 80. The message resembled Brenda's Got a Baby. What's crazy was I was hearing about it, but doubted your ignorance. How could you ever just put her on blast and shit? Judging her passing shit. Well, it's completely my future. Her nigga behind me right now, asking for ass and shit. And I'ma need that $40 even if I gotta fuck, suck, and swallow. Hit the parking lot, cause I just Park, I'm followed by a merry man and father three. My titties bounce on the cadence of his tingling keys. Matter of fact, he my favorite, cause he tipped he got a cousin named david and i seen him last week this is the life of another girl damaged by the system these foster homes i run away and never do miss them see my hormones just run away and if i can get them back to where they used to be then i'd probably be in the denim of a family gene that show women how to be woman Get a leader, you need to learn something, you probably need to be the. That's how I was taught.
2: The work that I do now, I took a job at a place called the Hedrick Martin Institute. And it's an organization that caters its services to LGBTQ youth who are aged twelve to twenty four. And I remember walking in there, let me, let me be honest, I wasn't qualified for that job. The executive director, Thomas Trevor, took a big chance on me. And I will always be indebted to him because that's where I learned how to do the work that I do now. But I remember walking in there, you know, having judgment around these kids, you know, thinking that, oh, life's not that hard. Like they shouldn't be living the way that they do. And walking out of there two and a half years later, understanding that I got a lot of work to do, not just in the rest of the world, but on myself to really get to a place where I learned that it's not that I can't judge, but I shouldn't. Meeting these young sheroes and heroes just really, just set my life on fire. And hearing that Kendrick Lamar song, as he told the story of others, realizing that I have this platform, right? Where I'm on television, I'm writing, I'm doing all these things, like I need to, share the stories of people who live at the margin, right? Of people who don't get the privilege of having their stories told because we've made it, we constantly made a choice that they don't matter. And Kendrick told the story of three people in that song. And I really think he did it because the world needs to hear what's going on. He's basically saying that, hey, like this story needs to be told in order for hopefully the world to get better. And I was like, wow, that's the work that I do. You know, I tell stories of others because no one else will tell them because no, no one else, for lack of a better word, cares. Like, we've made a choice that some stories are important and some stories stories on but who's telling the, the story of people who have the least i tie my stomach in knots and i'm not sure
0: why i'm infatuated with death my imagination is surely an aggravation of threats that can come about because the tongue is mighty powerful and i can name a list of your favorites that probably vouch maybe because i'm a dreamer sleep is the cousin of death really stuck in the schema wondering when i'm rest. And you're right your brother was a brother to me and your sister's situation was the one that put me In a direction to speak on something That's realer than the TV screen By any means wasn't trying to hope in To come between her personal life I was like you need to be told Cursing the life of 20 generations the her soul Exactly what'll happen if I ain't continue rapping Or steady being distracted by money, drugs, and four Fives, I count lives all on these songs Look at the weak and cry Pray one day you be strong Fighting for your rights Even when you're wrong And hope that at least one and you think about me
2: when I'm gone. Am I worth it? Did I put enough work in? From the time I knew I was gay up until I came out in 2012, I spent my whole life lying. I mean, like, I was a fantastic liar. The work I try to do now on on myself, but in the world, is to just be, be vulnerable, because I really believe that vulnerability is a strength. That we rarely create space for primarily men, but all of us, to be vulnerable. Um, when you sent me the email about doing this, I was, I was like, I want to pick songs where I can be really vulnerable and really honest, not just pick songs that make me want to dance and do the Dougie, but songs that really have a lot of deep meaning for me and songs that that are etched in moments in my life. When I heard that song from Precious, I literally almost cried. and I was like, I got to find that song. And, and then the Kendrick Lamar song, when I heard it, something kind of shook inside of me, something just moves inside of me, and when, when that happens, I, I try to just to listen. Um, like right now, I've been playing Erica Badu's first album, every single day I'm playing her music, right? And something in my spirit said, hey, this is what I should hear right now, which will lead me into the fourth song. is bag lady by erica badu so a lot of the work that i do is about like social justice stuff right but i have heard this song a long long time ago but never really listened this song is all about the baggage that we as human beings carry the baggage that if you're a female, the amount of times that you've been called a bitch or a, or a slut or a hoe, you're taking someone else's baggage oftentimes and you're carrying that. You're carrying the weight of someone else's judgment, of someone else's hatred, right? And me as a black gay man who's an athlete, the amount of times I've been stereotyped to be this awful thing, you internalize that. When I watch, what's going on in Ferguson or Eric Garner or Trayvon Martin. The reason why I hurt the way that I do, besides the fact that I really care, is that I'm carrying so much baggage. I live on the Upper West Side of New York City. I live in a, in a really nice apartment. I live in an all white building except for the people who are the doormen. And on my block, I'm probably one of three people tops, right? So me walking out of my door is a political act because most people don't believe I should live in this building. Walking down my block is a political act. So there's baggage that, that I have to carry. I walk into my building and probably around two in the morning, there was a couple who was ahead of me. And as they went into the building, I hurried up so I could grab the door as well. And the guy stops me and he says, do you live here? I look at him and I said, do you? And then I say hello to the doorman who's in the building. And then we get on the the elevator and they're talking to each other in a different language. And then the lady says, oh, you live on the 17th floor. We live on on the 15th. Is that you that plays that loud music? I, I say, well, actually, it's the guy on the 16th floor who's in music school. He's a music student. You should meet him. That whole interaction, I internalize a lot of it. So that song Bag Ladies really given me the idea that I need to find some tools to do some excavation work to get rid of that baggage because that baggage kills us. It kills us silently and it kills us very, very slowly. Lady,
3: Baby, that your love and make it better. Now what about the plastic bag, lady? Let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. My baby, bag mama, yeah. Let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. my book, bag, lady.
2: It is my favorite song, you know, and I've been doing some workshops around the country that uses that song as the backdrop. And I play it every every day because it reminds me that I need to learn how to do better self-care. I posted on Facebook and on Twitter. I asked the question. I said, hey, what do you all do for self-love and self-care in the face of all of the aggressions that are thrown your your way? Whoever you are, we all deal with something, right? And no one had any really good answers. People were like, oh, I take my dog for a walk or uh, I zone out and I watch a really ratchet television show and I'm like, that's not really what I mean by self-care and self-love. And it got me to thinking that we don't know how to do that. You know, the reason why so, much, so many of us are in pain or live in fear is because of that baggage that we carry. Because all we do is pass it on to the next person, right? Someone gives it to me, I get mad and give it to you. You get mad to give it to someone else. So we're, we're all just carrying this baggage and, and Erica's right. Love will, will make it better. But I think she means self-love. Like, because if I love myself, then I won't take your back. I play in the New York Gay Flag Football League. And one of my good friends, Paul Sorkelson, he told me one day, he said, every guy in this league thinks you're a hero and they, they really look up to you. And, and I was like, why? And he was like, first of all, you're an ex NFL player. <laughs> he was like, and you play with us and you actually treat us good. And I was like, I'm not supposed to be an asshole, am I? I listened to him a little more. And basically what he, what he was saying that I could do more with, with my life to inspire people. So at that point I was like, okay, what do I wanna do? And I was like, hey, like, why don't I go volunteer somewhere? So I actually walked into Hedrick Martin to volunteer and I walked out of there with a job. And I walked out of there on my last day as the best representation of myself that I can ever be. And I owe my entire career to those young people. <laughs> oh
1: <my> mom. <laughs> Hi, Mom. I'm really scared right now, but I have to. At age 13, my mother knew I wasn't straight. She didn't understand, but she had so much to say She sat me on the couch, looked me straight in my face and said You'll burn in hell or probably die of age It's funny now, but at 13, it was pain To be almost sure of who you are and have it ripped away And I'm sorry if it's too real for some of you to fathom But hate for who you love is not exactly what you'd imagine Uh... And I guess it was disastrous cause everything that happened afterwards was just madness. Locked away for two years to keep me on the inside because she'd rather see a part of me die than me
2: pride. I remember getting on the and train it's one day when it's and, day and it's seeing this young trans woman on the train. Like and she was deep very deep early, early on in her, and in her so transition. So and I remember so looking at her not and not seeing idea. people on the train look at her with so much you hatred and fear inside of them. them. And I thought to myself like, wow, how hard must her life be? And I offered nothing but pity to her. Like, I didn't even say hello because I didn't want her to be in, like, get in her business, but like, she was smiling the whole time. And then I, I saw the same young woman on the same train, probably a month or two later, and people looked at her the exact same way. And she was still smiling. So, something is like, wow, how can she be smiling through all of this? And then I realized she's not taking on any of that baggage she's loving herself she's loving the woman that she is and it really started me thinking like I need to stop looking at young people from a place of pity or at this idea of at risk and see them as at promise right because she had a promise and she wanted me to see her promise and use the access that I have to give her the tools to reach that promise not to, not to live for her or live through her but just to be a witness to her beauty to her her brilliance took our glory. You only get that from working in a place like that. Steve,
1: and I stand for the girl with the cuts up a sleeve and a heart in her hand and that chip on her shoulder. And I stand for it all until ignorance is over. This is for you for knowing who you are, for never letting your magic outside of your heart be you. Be brave and understand that things do change. I accept you for you when I don't understand, and I love you for you.
2: I was assigned as a as free agent by the Titans, so I went from the Titans to NFL Europe when it did ex- exist. And then back to the Titans, to the Seahawks, I got cut, I got sent back to NFL Europe, and I was in a place uh, called Barcelona. And in Barcelona, there is a small city called Sitges, and Sitges is the second highest gay populated place in the world. So imagine me being in seaches with all of my football buddies, right? And um, we go to the beach and the beach is literally across the street from our hotel. And we're in the water for like maybe three minutes and the water is freezing cold. And this guy walks past in a yellow Speedo. And I, let's just say I begin to be aroused. And my buddies are like, all right, let's go in, let's go in. And I'm like, oh, the water is beautiful, it's beautiful. Same time, I'm thinking, oh, dead babies, dead dead babies, you know, I'm trying to think of my, of my mom, because I can't come out of the water at this point, right? And for the next 11 weeks, I am in pure purgatory because there are hot men in Speedos and tight pants everywhere. And it was just, it was pure hell. And I remember thinking like, like what am I going to do? Like, how can I live the rest of my life this way? Because I'm going to be in places where there are attractive men. And I was, i so tired. I don't like to use the term in the closet because human beings don't live in closets. I was never knocked out. But I remember thinking like, if I don't figure this out, I'm gonna die. Like, I never thought about killing myself, but I just knew it was gonna eat away at me and it was gonna be such an exhaustion that I would never really be able to to really live and if you aren't out you're not really living you know and I truly wasn't and then I remember playing with the Titans you know the guys were amazing you know my teammates were 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 amazing like I loved them but I was also able to put my gay side on the shelf because when when I was with my teammates or playing football or in the weight room I didn't think about being gay but when I was alone in my own silence being gay was so loud I mean it was like having Beats headphones on high volume, you know, because I was like, you're gay, you're gay, you're gay. And when I retired finally, I was like, ah, I'm moving to New York City. Where else do you go to be gay where no one knows you? I remember going into my first gay club thinking like, this is awful, because they were playing like techno crap or house music and I was like, can I brother get some Young Jeezy in here? You know, like I can't really dance to this. I knew I wanted to be gay, but I didn't, the world that I had saw was not the world I could ever exist in, you know? Like I still, you know, like other things besides the stereotypical things that we imagine that gay men, men like. But I did want to make out and have sex with men. So I was like, where do I find that space Then And then I remember meeting um, a good friend of mine named Sid Ziegler. and I'll always be indebted to Sid. He introduced me to the gay flag football league. And that was where I met oh my god i met my family i mean these men and women just loved me and embraced me and it was i was home i mean i've been so blessed to meet amazing people who have shepherded me along my journey and when i just decided to invite the world in um, my business partner you know he, he doesn't use the word. Coming out. he uses the term inviting in. And Donnell Moore, when, when he said that to me, I was like, you're so right. Like, you're not coming out, you're inviting the world in to your innermost thoughts, to your innermost feelings. So um, when I did invite the world in, was like the first time I actually started to breathe. Not only like a sense of relief, but like a sense of real life. It was getting to my real self. It was no longer this fake person and no one really even knew. Coming out to my NFL and college teammates was beautiful. I've yet to have one buddy, college or a pro, or even high school, reject me, you know? And I think that that pushes back from this myth that athletes can't be loving towards gay individuals. And the work that I do, do now really affirms that. I mean, I've, I've had players just be like, I don't care if you're gay, man, but can you play? You know, the organization that I work for, you can play. It's just, it's, it's really, Showing people that hey, athletes only care about one thing, and that's winning.
0: Hey, hey, girls some ghetto sun throwing rocks at the busting of the ghetto fun i always wonder where the ghetto
2: from because I'm from the ghetto they never ghetto come but you win if fell my ghetto wrong and if the ghetto lose it mean the ghetto won i believe that we're all sexist we're all racist we're all homophobic how could we not be how could we not be the real work is doing the work to unlearn that I mean, it's racism and and sexism and homophobia and every ism out there. We're constantly bombarded with that. So it's not shocking to me when I, when Donald Sterling does what he does, right? When um, the Eric Garner Vernon comes back, I'm never shocked. But I think we have to get to a space where people can just say, hey, you know what? I was raised hearing these these things. I'm gonna own that. I'm gonna do the work to get them out of me. A friend of mine always says that either you're living in fear or you're living in love. And I think too many of us live in fear. Um, my favorite quote is by Maya Angelou. And she says that courage is the most important virtue because with, without it, nothing else can be practiced Consistent. And the consistent part is the key. Stay together with physical manifestation of hate in a
0: place where ethnicity determines your placement, a place that defines your station. Reminds you, niggas, your place is the basement. Why people in the attic? Niggas selling dope, white people is the addicts. White folks act like they, show us how to traffic. Call it dope to China. You don't call that trapping. Breaking bad. Learned that from a TV. So don't say it's politics when
2: you see me. The word allyship is a scary word to me. I like to have people who stand in solidarity with me, right? Because I think that solidarity means that you've actually done the work on yourself. You're doing the work on yourself. You're taking the time to be empathetic. You're doing your own homework. You're thinking about things that don't look at you in the mirror every day, right? Like, I am probably the most passionate about women's rights more than anything else. I'm not a female, right? Let's take the LGBT, the same-sex marriage issue, right? So, on the day that DOMA was struck down, two days before the Voting Rights Act was gutted. So, I think it was Kimberly Crenshaw that said this. Imagine you're a Latino lesbian who's living in Texas or somewhere else, like you may have won the right to marry but lost the right to vote. And so many of my friends would put these, you know, the equal same sex marriage sign on their Facebook posts, but not one person mentioned the voting rights act. So for me, I'm like, wow, you really only care about things that look at you in the mirror. If you're not a a person of color or a minority, the voting rights act doesn't apply to you so you really don't care. The reason why I like the word solidarity over, over ally because allyship is fleeting. I really truly believe that being an ally means that i'm all for lgbtq rights once same-sex marriages pass my train stops here i'm not going to keep riding as bell hook says you start your work at the margins right at the people who have the least and you work your way in then you will get everybody right trickle down economics doesn't work for a reason you start with those who have the most You'll be tired of pretending to people who have the least, and they're always left out. And I think that people who are allies, who don't stand in solidarity with you, oftentimes forget that the job is not done. Hip-hop matters because it tells the stories of people who would otherwise never have a platform. It's very much so like Negro spirituals where um, it was a way for people to get out some of the pain that they were dealing with on wax.